0: Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Hello and welcome to the HPP podcast. I am Shanae Burch, a Black arts and public health researcher, member of the Health Promotion Practice Editorial Board. And I join Lacante Dill and Ryan Pedaway as a co-associate editor of the new section, Poetry for the Public's Health. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Miranda C. Ward, author of a poem published in HPP titled, I Do, in this year's September issue. These poems all exist in front of a paywall as supplements available to all to read and enjoy. Poets have been invited to record their poems to offer a more sonic, creative encounter, and we'll celebrate the publishing of such poems with episodes such as this one along the way. I'm particularly excited to talk with our guest today, since we're two Black women existing as poets and public health scholars. Before we get started, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from.
1: Hey y'all. Yes, this is Miranda, as Shanae mentioned. So thank you so much to HPP. Thank you so much to my girl, the Conte Deal, hashtag Doc Deal, as well as Arden and just the opportunity to kind of, you know, give more of a backstory to the story I actually shared in this issue. And so even though I do teach public health courses to undergrads, As an assistant professor in the School of Medicine, Health Sciences at the George Washington University, I actually think of myself as a community educator, as a curriculum developer, and as a youth builder. So the discussions that I facilitate have actually never really been limited to the four walls of Ross Hall at GW, but they really do extend across the city. So DC, yes is my classroom and really explains why my curriculum is hyper-focused on local community identity, local community assets, and all in between to really advance health equity. And so this is why I can lead what I describe as a homegrown labor of love that I call promise and futures for DC youth. So this youth development pipeline really engages youth as young as 11, but as old as 24 in first, an after-school curriculum-based program as an ambassador, and these youth can literally age into the high school peer education program, and they can stay involved once they enter the workforce or go off to college as youth builders, and they basically return and serve as mentors and facilitators for, you know, the programming for the younger two cohorts of youth in the pipeline, and like them, I'm also mentoring too, and I gain so much from their Ingenuity, their voice, their leadership. So yes, I really do get the best of both worlds with having adolescents across the city that I get to know and learn with and learn from in a promising futures, as well as another pipeline program that I'm involved with at GW called the Health Careers Opportunity Program. But this also extends to the adolescents at GW in my classroom that I'm developing reciprocal relationships with too. So um. As far as where I'm calling in from, I'm a Cali girl who has put down some roots in Washington, D.C. More specifically, I'm a homeowner in Northeast D.C. in Ward 7, but I am calling in from New Orleans right now because of the great migration. Many of us Cali folk have Southern roots. so My daddy was born and raised here, and I'm actually with family in New Orleans for the holiday break.
0: That's incredible. I actually just spent some time in NOLA for my birthday. It was my first time visiting and I had so many people come up to me and like from the community saying like, your family's from here. You look like my cousin. And it just, it meant so much. I, I really appreciate you sharing all that you shared, but I, I had yes. to respond to right. no and, You know
1: what? And I actually went to grad school here at Tulane in the School <laughs> of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. And I was also here two weeks ago for Xavier's homecoming. It's like a oh black homecoming. So, you know, I'm used to the Stillhouse epic homecoming, but I got to experience Xavier's because actually one of my mentees from Problems and Futures I actually goes there. She's going into her junior year studying public health. And so I was there on some of the grant funded work, but I was like, "While well, I'm here. I got to go see Toy. Shout out to Toy, uh, Francis <laughs> and all the wonderful work that she's doing as a
0: Miranda, you are so cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, that's what I have to say that's-
0: to your introduction, because you are so cool. <laughs> I think that the question that I want to continue the conversation with is, you know, what does poetry for the public's health mean to you?
1: I love this question. This is like this is like a really great start off, you know, jump right in type of question, because I really believe that. Poetry is a mode of expression that's really not limited by the conventions of academic writing, right? <laughs> so it's almost kind of like it really allows for me to be uninhibited in thinking and writing about, for example, with this issue, the importance and the purpose and the role and function or even impact of public health. And I think that, you know, just having that space, this carved out space that both Ryan and LaConte made sure happened in HPP is very much appreciated and equally necessary. So. Let me just give a little backstory. So my youth development pipeline, Promise and Futures, we rely on what we call edutainment, right? So it's like education, entertainment. The reason why we call it edutainment is because we basically pull together hip hop and theater and poetry to make a range of social and health justice issues come alive, right? So the youth peer educators, they literally use their bodies, They use their language. They use their everyday lives and identities to really engage their peers in riveting informative relatable discussions that you know that they feel are important and so when youth join the program I just feel like you know one of the things I introduced early on is how it really is like a long-term programming so I almost kind of like I'm like a an auntie you know <laughs> So proud of my babies. You know, I'm like, oh look, dude, I remember a time when you were so shy and you really blossomed. But, you know, some of them come in like, oh yeah, you know, I'm ready to, to engage in this art form. And they literally come and see themselves as poets, but others actually come in for the other reason. They come in because like, oh, this is fun and their friends are doing it. They come in because of the opportunity to get to know the city and themselves in the process. They come in for the leadership, they come in for the advocacy. So some of those youth actually, they actually share reservations about being asked to use art forms to put publicly express themselves because they feel the need to quote-unquote perform, right, Mm. and be held to some standard of what counts as poetry. So, you know, we actually start to unpack basically, you know, we're always negotiating how we're performing and showing up in our identities. And so we're doing that with often, you know in ways that we're not thinking about and that's how I think of poetry, right? So I know and appreciate the mechanics of poetry. I know and appreciate the art form of poetry but I also know and appreciate the flexibility to make poetry be what I want it to be. And so I think that's just like the beauty and the brilliance and the moment that we're in with this issue that, you know, I just could be in the ways that I needed to be. And that's what I tried to do with my poem, I do. Yes. And
0: as an artist and as a scholar, as a community educator, can you share more about how you became a poet and public health professional?
1: (laughs) So this question is almost like, tell me about the first time you fell in love with hip hop. Remember that? that? (laughs) Yes. Yes, so it's like bringing me down like this nostalgic path to the people who have really inspired me, like Sonia Sanchez, La Conte Deal, Dixon Diallo. So for me, I've always been an educator, always had an interest in a health career, definitely a product of the 90s. So it's almost like with all that combined, I just feel like it was just natural to want to be drawn to rhythm, to blackness, to sisterhood, to health justice, to wellness, and really I feel like it started in like my fifth grade health class. And I, you know, I had more questions than answers. So, you know, I ended up joining my high school's Medical Services Career Academy at the time. I definitely knew I wanted to be an OBGYN, right? But obviously, clearly God had other plans. But it wasn't until I went to the illustrious film in college that I attended what was called a Healthy Love Party. And it was actually hosted by this Atlanta-based, community-based organization called Sister Love. That was started by my myself and sister Dazon. So they had us in the dorm kicking over our music and pizza and we were talking about sex and relationships and everything in between. And I was like, oh my God, I am so about this peer education life. And it really explains why I manage my own peer education program now. But I was introduced to it when I was struggling to pass chemistry. And one of my Spelman and Bonner scholar sisters, Chanel McGoy, she ended up putting me on to public health and she was like, "Well, you say you have an interest in, you know, reproductive sexual health, women's health. Like you do realize you can still do that and not be on the clinical path, right? Like you don't have to actually know and understand like the mole, right? Like in chemistry." So I was like, "What? So like tell me more. What is public health?" And so I got, you know, introduced to Public Health and the Public Health Science Institute literally right across the street at Morehouse, but because, you know, Spelman would often provide us opportunities to literally read and sit at the feet of phenomenal Black women thinkers and writers and artists, it was hearing Sonia Sanchez, you know, just, you know, Sonia Sanchez, If for those of you not familiar, she has such a very huge loud presence about herself in such a small frame and I'm also similarly you know have a small frame so I was very blown away with how she could put words together in a way that that literally I felt like my heart was pumping to right and she was just so black with it too I was like oh my god yes like it made me smile made me proud and made me want to put my own words down to describe my own blackness and so I often, you know, did that in the poems that I shared with my youth and the poems that I shared as in assignments, in my doctoral program, in the poem that I authored in this issue. And it's literally what my spellman says, you know, Nacha LeCante Deal, you know, Cali girl like me, calls crunk public health, right? And why it really just made sense that she was one of the editors of this issue looking for, and I quote, bars and bar graphs. I like literally died when I read that. I was like, I know that's right. So I just feel like poetry and public health just go together for me.
0: Yes. And you've made references to your poem titled, I Do, which again mentioned earlier is featured in our September issue. I wanted to know if you felt comfortable sharing two to three lines of the poem and telling us a little bit more
1: about it. Yeah, absolutely. My poem is really, it was actually really in response to living through the triple pandemic of racism, state sanction, violence, and COVID. So on the one hand, you know, I've been doing the work to advance justice and equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism before the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But after the national reckoning on racism, I was getting hit up on the daily to give a talk, to be on a committee, to lead this effort, to convene a panel or workshop. It was just nonstop and I was exhausted. And, but at the same time, I was feeling conflicted. Like, how dare I complain about the need to educate folks on this? I mean, this is what I said I do, right? This is who I said I am. So, you know, I was trying to understand why it felt so draining. And it was because I was simultaneously experiencing gender oppression and racism while having to teach other people about it and being expected to do it in a way that wasn't too black and too bold and too upsetting. You know, it was like, The white tears and the private comments, but public silence that I would get from colleagues who really sat in their kind of like just uninterrupted, obviously unearned privilege, but they wanted to let me know on the low that they do support my ideas too, you know? So I just couldn't take it, you know? I just, and but I I knew that, you know, what would be helpful for me is to articulate, well, what exactly is it that I can't take? So I started to write it out, right? And so it was that expectation to shrink myself. Right. And that's why I write about, you know, how I show up and, you know, not, you know I want to be able to show up in like my hoop earrings and not having to put on studs or pearls, right? For you, right? <laughs> um yes. You know, take on the burden of experiencing and teaching, you know, this institutionalized racism while trying to challenge it with people who don't really understand their role in it and how it's going to be inconvenient and hard to dismantle whiteness, which is why I talk about, you know, actually you're using the terms interchangeably, you know, and that. Uh, you like, don't understand what it is. Right. And also in the way that, you know, I'm also expected to kind of disentangle all of the complexities of who I am. Right. Just check off, you know, oh, I'm black. Oh, and I'm a woman and I'm this age. It's like, well, actually, I'm all of these things simultaneously all all the time. And so, like, while y'all get to you know think about this for the first time in this anti bi you know, anti-racism training, this is my life. Right, I don't, I can't compartmentalize it as you do in a training or at work. And then it's off to the regularly scheduled program for you. Those are the, some of the things that I write about. So, you know, I basically wanted to be clear though that what I wasn't tired of was being black. Right, I was tired of the yes, the enduring legacy of racism, and so that's why I literally list all the things I don't get to do because of the system of racism. And despite this, I do and always will love being a Black woman in public health. That's literally the last line of the poem. And that's literally the title. That's why I call it I do, even though the entire poem is saying what I don't get to do because of racism. Mm.
0: Yes. Yes. Wow. And, you know, this is this is a new endeavor for us, like as much as it is a you mentioned Sonia Sanchez and like, as much as this is an extension of the lineage or the history of artists whom we admire, especially within the black tradition and black arts movement, who were using poetry as as a source or as a a clarion call or a, a microphone. And so by putting our poems or situating our poems within this academic journal, I'm curious, especially since it's peer reviewed, we asked you to write an abstract and I'm curious what this process was like for you and if any aspect of the process surprised you. So many times when we write poems, you know, it says what it says and we don't necessarily need to introduce it or offer additional notes, but for the purposes of this journal, we did. So I'd love to hear what that process was for you.
1: Yeah, I ain't gonna lie. At first, I was like, are they seriously applying academic standards to poetry? Like, what do they do to that, at? right? But then I was, you know, I started to think about it. And I was like, you know what, I actually appreciate this. Because it, what it did was it reminded me of the audience, right? And the readers of the journal who are actually used to reading abstracts. They may not be used to reading poetry, especially in an academic peer review journal, as you said, right? So meeting them where they are is actually really important, and it helps prime them for what they're going to read. And I especially like that this issue invited all of us poets and public health professionals to audio record our poems. And so what I really hope that readers do is actually start off reading my poem right after they are introduced to it from the abstract and then tune into the audio and I say this because I want them to interpret it on their own first because to me that's how art is meant to be experienced right just just go straight into it and you know just experience it for yourself and then once you do that then go and tune in click the audio and hear me narrate inside the poem because after when you hear me do it you'll hear like the intonation that I apply to specific words, where I pause or emphasis, just like the overall cadence of the poem. And, Mm. you know, it very well, either maybe different than you initially experienced it when you just read it, you know, straight from the page or from the, you know, your laptop or wherever you're accessing it digitally. But also it's kind of like, oh, wow, I didn't even think, you know, you you may have a different experience with it once you hear me actually articulate it. And I feel like that, that like being situated in that way is so important. It's kind of like what I thought, how I interpret it. And then now I'm being told like, oh, look, this is how I, this is how I created it, right? It's like that to me, it's almost kind of like, it doesn't necessarily have to be attention. It could be, but it also can be just a room for interrogation, right? (laughs) It could be room for, Insight. It could be room for you know for more exploration. So I think that would just be a meaningful way to experience it.
0: Yes, yes. And i I want to lift up. I think the beauty of what you had shared about remembering our audience because I think that that's something that as like the co associate editors we think about a great deal because of like the learning that's happening and what does it mean for poems to exist within the section, but also outside of the section and thinking about how we hope people bring these poems into their their day-to-day you know, responsibilities and communities as public health professionals, even if they're not yet poets. Right. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you lifting that up and I hope that people will take the opportunity to encounter the poems in the different ways, via text, through the sonic, you know, sharing of it, but then also in these conversations that we have with the poets to really learn about the totality of their lives and, you know, all of the things that have led to this moment of sharing. Agreed, yep, yep. I I really, really, uh, before we we part, I did want to give you an opportunity to talk maybe more about your work at Promising Futures and the other youth programs you design. What are you most looking forward to in the coming new year?
1: Yeah, so I'm looking forward to actually putting together a compilation of their poems and written in oral forms to make publicly available, obviously with credit to them, of course. So, you know, when I talk about my youth and the youth, you know, I really do admire and respect and appreciate and feel, you know, so inspired by the youth poets in Promising Futures. They're so dope. They're just so you know they're just critical purveyors of the world, right? So I don't think of them as I don't romanticize them in in ways that often. I don't want to say often. There there are times where I I hear and I see and I read. You know people kind of, you know in a paternalistic way, like oh you know look you know here are the youth right they're so cute. That's not what I'm doing, right? And my youth, no. Literally, I'm naming you know Braxton Epps, you know Terricia Jackson, like Dennis Contreras. Like these are youth who literally you know, out here picking apart and like I said, interrogating complex phenomena. And I literally invited 10 of the youth poets in Promise and Futures to actually serve as co-researchers in my dissertation study on their identities as urban youth, as peer educators. And we literally co-authored 10 research poems that actually are published on my website, and because there's a whole section on Promise and Futures, which is promisingfuturesdc.org But Basically, it really, you know, through this arts-based participatory action research study, you know, like you literally see the power of poetry, right? It literally gave them access to what they otherwise felt like they couldn't access, that being research, right? And the bodies of literature that really characterize them in often pejorative ways. And so... Poetry allowed them to talk back to those bodies to really extend and to correct and to reclaim how they see themselves now and into the future. And so I'm looking forward to working with the Social Publishers Foundation as a site to house and you know make visible their work. This is
0: this just feels like the culmination of so many beautiful threads and often like siloed like brilliances, like all (laughs) coming together.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, yes, and I will say, you know what, okay, so, yes, the work that I do with, you know, Youth and Promising Futures, you know, hands down, like, that is just such a critical part of, you know, like I said, who I am and whenever I'm asked to describe the work that I do, again, I'm like, oh, community educator, youth builder, right, because it's like... I, like I learned so much from the youth, right? It's literally like a reciprocal relationship like I described earlier. And I feel like they poured so much into me that that's why I have what I need to do the work that I'm doing, you know, in the academic and research spaces at GW, right? So, you know, I'm director of equity in the Department of Clinical Research and Leadership, which is bringing some accountability to and metrics to the work that we're doing. You know, I'm leading an anti racism demonstration project and two health sciences programs that are really gonna allow for us to have a model around what institutional readiness and organizational change looks like at the department level to kind of codify, you know, our social mission in tangible ways. I'm leading a health equity study across, you know, nine health professions programs, really to, in a standardized way, really have a set of competencies for our students around, you know, advancing health equity. I have a research lab called Core Health where I'm literally engaging students. This is the first year actually, because I have a externally funded grant that allows me to have a strategic partnerships with several HBCUs, um, including Meharry and, and Xavier. And Tuskegee and Morrill School of Medicine and Dillard. And so I actually have a student from Dillard who has since joined my research lab and I usually only have GW students. I'm excited. I'm like, okay, look, you know, so I got 10 students, one of them from from Dillard. That's just the beginning. So I'm looking forward to expanding even more and having students across the, you know, U.S. specifically at HBCUs join this lab and be able to advance some of the work that we're doing locally in D.C., but also nationally with a, you know, national program that I'm funded to do around COVID-19 and and HIV called 211. So ultimately, I got a lot a lot you know a lot of moving parts you know hashtag never a dull moment is like my you know my mantra these days but which is why I'm so looking forward to this break which I'm actually going to do I'm actually going to break okay so I don't break <laughs> yes break speak be- so that we don't break that yes yes that
0: is huge and I think that you know rest is something really important. And I was at a convening actually for Creating Healthy Communities down in Orlando, the University of Florida, their Center for Arts and Medicine in partnership with a number of other orgs were there. But Josh Miller from Ideas X Lab had asked the question to funders about like rest equity. Mm. what What would it look like for, you know, these externally funded grants to fund our incredible work that takes us across the country. I, I'm thinking of your mantra. I think global yet act local. Mm-hmm. Also, these same funders to then also support rest equity. So I, I'm definitely thinking about Josh Miller's question as I like hear you and and, and and talk about these things. I know that one of the things that I like to do during my my moments of rest when I'm not like reading for research or papers, but instead reading for pleasure, that's like another word I think that's related to breaking, resting and such. What are you currently reading? Or if you know, you're know you not actively reading, what's at the top of your reading list as a, a poet and public health scholar?
1: Yeah, so I literally just bought a book from Jessica Nabongo called The Catch Me If You Can. Basically, this is a Black woman who has broken records on literally traveling to every country in the world. (laughs) And she literally documented her travel in this very colorful, beautifully curated book. And, you know, pre-COVID, I was, you know, I was here for travel, okay? And I mean, I'm not that I'm not, you know, traveling. I just haven't obviously traveled as much. So I only more recently started to get back just traveling domestically, right? But I want to get back to, you know, what I enjoy, like like you said, around that rest equity. And I know that for me, travel provides that respite for me, it allows for me to, you know, experience the world and the beauty in it. And so, I'm looking at Jessica's, you know, catch me if you can as a manual, like, okay, so what's she eating? Was she, you know, (laughs) where is she, uh, you know, you know, where is she next? And I'm just like flipping through literally all the places in the U.S., let alone, you know, literally every single continent that she's been in. So that, and I actually, you know, had the pleasure of meeting her because she was actually at the Essence Festival. And she had a book signing, which is where, you know, I got the book. But yeah, so that's one. I haven't yet. I, I purchased the, this book of, you know, Viola Davis's, you know, book. And yes. that's up next because I just love, I mean, I watched her interview is what it was. I watched her interview with Oprah. With Oprah, yes. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God. Right. So I was like, okay. So as soon as I literally got done with the interview, I went to Amazon and like clicked, you know, <laughs> clicked, you know, added into the cart and basically, you know, it was on its way with Amazon Prime. So, that's, you know, next on the uh on the list. But And that, uh, and
0: that book's called Finding Me, right? It is. And yeah, I love that. Me.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, those are the the two that are up next in my kind of queue. Just, you know, like you, as I, as I said, like just to to, you know, get away. I mean, cuz I absolutely love, you know, reading about, you know, the the actual work that I do, right? Whether we're talking about you know, thinking there's this book called, you know, like, you know, wellness, there's several books that talk about the things that I teach about from, you know, medical apartheid and medical racism and scientific racism. So I read those, but after a while, like, I, I don't read those books as respite. Those books are, you know, these books are what I need to make sure that I'm like, you know, I'm grounded in my field.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> reading
1: Harriet Washington, right? I'm reading, you know, any of these kind of texts from like Dorothy Roberts and things like that. So it's like, I, I need to have these texts. Absolutely, right? Yes. I mean, texts like all, you know, algorithms of oppression, like those type of texts. But at the same time, I also need some texts to just remind me and sew into me, you know, some of the things that I love to do, right? Like I said, travel, like, you know, take time to really kind of think of who I am, who I've been and who I'm becoming, like, you know, Viola's doing and I, and I appreciate how she's, you know, pinned it. And I just, you know, it's just very interesting and telling to me. So those are the couple of things I'm reading. Or list at least that I plan to read. So, like again, I just got them and I plan to read them.
0: That's beautiful. You know, I before we pause the conversation because, of course, I think the goal is that this conversation would just continue to exist in different ways. As we close, could you just share one more time how people can follow more of your work and keep in touch with you?
1: Absolutely. Yes. So they can certainly follow me at MirandaWard.com because that's where all my work is. It's like all chronicled there, as well as Promise and Futures. Again, the, the promise and futures dc.org is also takes you to MirandaWard.com because there's like a whole, you know, kind of page on Promise and Futures and the work. But then LinkedIn is an excellent place and it's even more up to date. That's the one thing about websites. They get static after a while because you got to update them. But on LinkedIn, like at every moment, it's like all the things that are currently going on, you go catch it on LinkedIn. Anything that I'm publishing, anything that, you know, award, any recognition. Okay, we know what, we're about to host this webinar. Like, so with the, the nationally funded two-in-one model that I mentioned before. Literally, I'm kicking off our nine-month training series in January, and we're going to have the Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, <laughs> the Pulitzer Prize winner, a racial scholar, you know, <laughs> a woman that does not mince words. I was like, yes, yes. That was yes. Yes. My- <laughs> Have her come and make it very clear that, you know, we will, you want to end, you know, health disparities, we have to end racism, okay? So I think that it's really important that clinicians have that discussion and understanding of this importance of having a racial equity lens to, you know, to their work. So, you know, kicking that off, right? So if you want to know about the series and where you can find things, follow me on LinkedIn because obviously you'll get the link to the actual page for 211smhs.gwu.edu. So it's like, it's too hard to remember all the different sites. So just go to LinkedIn, everything's there, or just go to my website. So I appreciate this, uh, this opportunity, (laughs) Sinead, and I'm hopeful that, you know, that the people actually love and appreciate, and they actually decide to submit to the next, you know, issues of poetry and public health.
0: Yes. Yes. And so, well, listeners, you heard that invitation to submit your poems for review. We'd like to thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Miranda C. Ward. To find out more information, check out our health promotion practice website. Thank you again to our guest, Miranda. Thank you to Arden Castle, our podcast editor for editing this episode. I'm the guest host, Sinead Birch, in representation of our section, Poach for the Public's Health, with LaConte Dill and Ryan Petaway. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'll be back soon in a few weeks with more episodes of the HPP podcast. Stay tuned. Mm Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health promotion practice. Take care and have a great day.